This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Legal precedents and accounting guidelines are ever-evolving here in the United States. Once in a generation, specific legislative acts can make waves well beyond their contemporaneous time periods. The Sarbanes-Oxley Act of 2002 is just one of those events, having forever changed the accounting and legal landscape, both in the requirements it created for public companies and for accounting firms, as well as how we view financial information itself, the role of auditors, and the public markets as a whole. Today's episode marks the 20th anniversary of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, or SOX as it is colloquially known, which was enacted in the summer of 2002. To coincide with this landmark legislation's anniversary, the Insecurities Podcast is kicking off our Accounting Summer School. Our next few episodes will focus on the accounting side of the Insecurities coin. We'll focus on the framework and agencies that oversee the accounting arena, both for financial reporting professionals as well as for auditors and external accountants. We'll also hone in on the structure of accounting guidance itself, which rules have been enacted recently and what's coming down the pike. We'll also be talking with leadership at major associations and agencies that inform and guide the accounting profession, including the PCAOB and the AICPA. We'll do our best to dive deep into the accounting archives and share insights from the industry about how accounting rules have changed, what that change has meant for the current landscape, and changes that may be coming in the next 20 years of SOX. And as always, even though we're calling this Accounting Summer School, We'll be sure to keep it light and accessible for all the attorneys like Kurt out there. We kick off Accounting Summer School today with UCLA School of Law professor Jim Park, one of our favorite past podcast guests. Jim is set to publish his book, The Valuation Treadmill, How Securities Fraud Threatens the Integrity of Public Companies, later this summer with the Cambridge University Press. We'll talk all things accounting, securities fraud, and 20 years of socks with Professor Park today on Insecurities. Hello and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It's good to be with you, Chris. The Accounting Summer School. I know you're excited. You pack your lunchbox. You know, I know you got that Power Rangers lunchbox from back in the day, Kurt. We're going to be at <laughs> summer school all summer long to talk accounting. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. You know, I was thinking leading into this that we are leaning hard into the wonky side, but right. but you've promised to keep it light and accessible. So how about <laughs> because like, we'll everything have an we exam. talked about? Yeah. At, yeah, yeah. At the end of the summer, we'll do a little exam and, and Ooh, we'll, yeah, we'll like that. sort of grade the professor here. Let's see how light and accessible <laughs> it was. I was going to say, it's always so, you know, accessible when we talk about, you know, market plumbing issues with you, Kurt. So I think we've been wonky many times in the past as well. <laughs> no, fair enough. Fair enough. Cool. Well, look, we've got a great episode lined up to kick off the accounting summer school. As you mentioned, we've got Professor Jim Park from UCLA here. He's going to talk to us a little bit about his book. We're going to talk a little bit about some of the aftermath of Sarbanes-Oxley because we're, you know, obviously coming up on the 20th anniversary of that act being passed and, and coming into effect. So, Without further ado, let's give you a little bit of background on Professor Park. James Park is a professor of law at the UCLA School of Law, where, among other things, he teaches securities regulation and a seminar on advanced topics in corporate and securities law. Jim is widely regarded as an expert on corporate law and securities regulation, and his research examines the regulation of securities fraud and corporate governance in public companies. Jim has written more than 20 law review articles that have been published in journals such as the California Law Review, Duke Law Journal, Journal of Empirical Legal Studies, Michigan Law Review, and of course, UCLA Law Review. His latest book, which we're going to talk about today, is The Valuation Treadmill, How Securities Fraud Threatens the Integrity of Public Companies. The book will be published in July by Cambridge University Press. Importantly, Chris, as you know, 
Jim is also a past guest on the Insecurities Podcast. He appeared back on episode 30. That was way back in January 2021 alongside Professor Karen Woody from Washington and Lee School of Law. We talked about SPACs, we talked about ICOs, ESG, insider trading, and some of the other enforcement trends we expected to be front and center in the Biden administration. And kudos to us, or, or really kudos to Jim and Karen. That's right. I, I think the topics were right on. So anyway, Jim, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Welcome back to Insecurities. Thanks so much, Kurt, and thanks for having me back on again. It's really great podcast and a lot of my students independently even the ones I don't tell about the podcast will tell me that they've heard that episode and so I think it's it's a really great resource for the securities law community That's awesome, Jim. And that's why we invite you back on, because you're just, you know, shouting our praises both to your students and, and to the securities <laughs> bar as a whole. Yeah, we always welcome uh, adding insecurities to to your uh, your quote reading list or maybe your listening yeah, this, list. So, you know, the syllabi out there, out there. You need <laughs> some filler. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. All right. So let's jump in. I'm not going to do it justice. All my accounting friends and fans of the podcast out there will, will send us many messages with how limiting we're going to we're going to preface what Sarbanes-Oxley is here. So we're going to do some quick hits. For those who need to catch up, we encourage you to go out and read some of the great coverage out there. We'll do our best to, to encapsulate some of that here. Sarbanes-Oxley was passed in July of 2002 with bipartisan support. So if we want to talk about what has changed in the past 20 years, we might get into that a little bit as well. 2002 was in the wake of several major public accounting scandals, Enron, WorldCom, Tyco, and the act was passed with the purpose of, quote, protecting investors by improving the accuracy and reliability of corporate disclosures, end quote. That's it, right? That's the one sentence about Sarbanes-Oxley, but we'll get into a little bit more of it here. Noting that bipartisan support, the House passed Sox by a 423 to 3 vote, and the Senate voted in favor of 99 to 0 with one abstention. I can't remember a political environment in such agreement, so I think, Kurt, the message here is that accounting really brings everyone together. I'll, I'll note that in my summer school notebook. Good. I was going to hit the, the rim shot sound effect there, too. Again, we'll get into some detail here, but there's four real elements that, that Sox kind of brought up and, and brought to light in the securities markets. Again, summarized here. The first is the establishment of the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board, or the PCAOB, to oversee the practice of auditing and to oversee audit firms themselves and to promulgate and issue auditing standards, those rules that auditors should follow. Second, SOX focused on independence and objectivity for auditors and their relationship with their clients. Third, company executives, individual issuers, CEOs, and CFOs are now responsible as individuals for the appropriateness and accuracy of financial reporting under Section 302 of the Act. And then I'm sure many of you know Section 404, internal controls over financial reporting, became a very large focus both internally at the companies to make sure that they are maintaining an appropriate system of control, as well as for auditors to test that system of control in a public company audit. Again, very brief, kind of four big rocks uh, that came out. Back in the early 2000s, us accountants used to joke that the acronym for Sarbanes-Oxley was not actually SOX. It was the AFEA, or the Accountants Full Employment Act, as many new jobs and responsibilities for accountants came to light afterwards. The systems and processes of financial reporting have been forever changed by SOX, and many in the industry believe that they've changed for the better. Others, however, have a different view of that impact. And for example, our good friend and past podcast host, Jesse Isinger, touched on socks in his book, The Chicken Shit Club. Quote, in July 2002, Congress passed a would-be landmark law, Sarbanes-Oxley, named after Maryland Democratic Senator Paul Sarbanes and Ohio House Republican Michael Oxley. Sarbox, as it came to be known, required corporations to have tighter internal bookkeeping controls. Chief executives and chief financial officers had to certify their company's books. Over objections, lobbying, and corporate resentment, the law set up a new overseer for the accounting profession, the PCAOB. There was a period of optimism about Sarbanes-Oxley. Some believed the new rules would grant regulators and prosecutors power of legal oversight. Law professor Kathleen Brickley predicted, quote, Sarbanes-Oxley firmly puts Anderson's legal and factual arguments to rest, while placing broad power in prosecutors' hands, end quote. She was wrong. 
Those are the words of Jesse Isinger's take on Sarbanes-Oxley. Anderson there being Arthur Anderson, the accounting firm that oversaw the audits of Enron prior to its collapse. And, and this change brought about to, to the accounting world. So again, accountants out there, I apologize for taking what has been such a seminal piece of legislation in our in our world and, and shrinking it down to three and a half minutes here. But Kurt, let's, uh, let's stop talking about the past. Let's look to the future and some background on Professor Park's book. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, I appreciated the download on Sarbox. Did people say that? I mean, I'm a Sox guy, but you, you know. know, we fight about acronyms all the time here. No yeah. one calls it peekaboo. <laughs> That's the only thing we have to come back to. No one calls it peekaboo. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about the book for sure. We mentioned up top that we're going to do that. Again, it is called The Valuation Treadmill, How Securities Fraud Threatens the Integrity of Public Companies. For those of you who are interested, and let's face it, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably are. The book will be available on July 28th, but it is available now for pre-order. You can go to the Cambridge University Press website. That's cambridge.org. And of course, you guessed it, you can go to amazon.com and find the book there. We're going to explore a few of the themes that Jim talks about in the book. But first, just a quick preview so you can get a sense of what it's all about. Public companies now face constant pressure to meet investor expectations. A company must deliver strong performance every quarter to maintain its stock price. This performance pressure creates incentives for corporations to deceive investors. As Chris explained, Sarbanes-Oxley requires all public companies to invest in measures to ensure the accuracy of their public disclosures. Jim's book, The Valuation Treadmill, shows how securities fraud became a major regulatory concern. Drawing on a number of high-profile case studies, the book argues that corporate securities fraud emerged as investors increasingly valued companies based on their future performance. The book also argues that corporations now have an incentive to issue unrealistically optimistic disclosures in order to convince markets that their success will continue. The book concludes that securities regulation must do more to protect the integrity of public companies from the pressure of the valuation treadmill. All right, so I think maybe the, the best place to start, we've said it now a few times, the valuation treadmill. Jim, what, what do we mean by the term valuation treadmill? Well, there's a great guide to valuation published by McKinsey and Company that I've used for a long time, and I would highly recommend this to anyone who is interested in, in finance and in valuation. There's a, a passage towards the start of the book that uses the analogy of a treadmill to describe the process by which stock markets value public companies. You basically have to keep moving constantly and deliver results just to stay in the same place, just to maintain your valuation. Unless you're showing the market that you are delivering and producing short-term profits, you might fall off the treadmill. The stock price will collapse. And this is what distinguishes public companies from private companies, this continuous pressure, which in, in my mind is a, a significant reason why public companies violate accounting standards and commit securities fraud. And, you know, just to add to, to Chris's point about the accounting summer, I remember more than 20 years ago being a summer associate and several of the partners telling me that if there's one class they wish they had taken in law school, it was accounting, not a law school class, but accounting because it is so important to business and public companies. It is something I think every lawyer should understand a little bit about because it's essential to the way that companies are valued, the way that comp that, that markets determine the valuation of a, of, of a public company. And so there's a really strong link between accounting rules and broader issues of law and finance that we as lawyers see all of the time. So, I mean, well, first of all, I'll, I'll echo that. I think it's it's really important for lawyers to have at least the basics on accounting. I know we've partnered with some friends at, at some big accounting firms before to have them come in and do sort of like an accounting 101 for for lawyers. I, I would say juniors, but there were, there were definitely some gray hairs in there as well. I know, Chris, <laughs> right. I think you do that sometimes with some, <laughs> Amen, of, your, that's true. With some yeah. of your clients. So <laughs> definitely worth doing. If you're a lawyer out there, call call Chris. He'll come, he'll come school you real quick. You got it. 
All right, but so that's sort of the the idea of the valuation treadmill, right? You're just sort of, you're, you're on this treadmill, you can't get off, you've got to keep showing some kind of progress. I suppose in some ways, Sox spoke to this incentive or this pressure, and I know it's something you talk about in the book. So, I mean, how do you, how do you address or how do you talk about Sarbanes-Oxley in your book? It's, in my view, this is why we need Sarbanes-Oxley. And, and if you think about what Sarbanes-Oxley is, it's a, it's a statute that says if you are a public corporation, a public company, you have to invest resources to prevent securities fraud and substantial resources. That, in essence, is what Sarbanes-Oxley is about. And there has been a lot of criticism of those costs. But my argument in the book essentially is, is history shows why we need Sarbanes-Oxley. And, and I think there's a, a tendency in, in talking about Sarbanes-Oxley to mainly focus on Enron and WorldCom, right? Those were the two frauds that were the proximate causes of the passage of the statute. And you can tell a story in those cases that the driving force of the fraud were bad individuals, bad actors who were trying to make a lot of money. You know, Skilling sells a whole bunch of stock after he leaves, but before the restatements happen, Bernie Ebers has all these loans that are backed by WorldCom stock. So there is a strong individual incentive to commit securities fraud. But if you look more broadly at the dozens of cases brought against companies in this era and other securities fraud cases, you don't always have a single bad actor or sets of individuals who are the primary drivers of fraud. It, it is often the case that the managers are acting, I think, for what they view as broader corporate goals, maintaining the stock price and facing pressure to meet. In order to meet market projections and expectations, they will potentially violate accounting rules. They may issue misleading statements. And so if you view securities fraud as mainly the result of, of bad people, then the solution is let's punish those bad people. And then the problem is behind us. Let's change executive compensation and it's not going to be a problem anymore. I think that's not quite the case. I think there is more of a structural issue here. And that's why we need a structural solution that says if you are a public corporation, your stock is trading in public markets, you need to invest in preventing securities fraud. Jim, I think you hit on a lot of kind of those discussion points about Sarbanes-Oxley over the years. And that incentive, right, Kurt, I know we've talked a bit about the fraud triangle on past episodes of the Insecurities podcast here. And that motivation is is easily laid bare in hindsight, right? You can look back at skilling sales of stock prior to the announcement of the issues with Enron and anybody who's, you know, even got a very small background in accounting or, or is in, in law school can understand, you know, there was a, a significant financial gain in the potential sales prior to some epically bad news. It's not always that straightforward though, right? But Professor Park, you talked a little bit about some of the more, I'll say esoteric or, or less directly linked kind of securities fraud issues that happen, sometimes financial reporting related, sometimes disclosure related. The book talks about all of these different ideas of securities fraud, but really before we get into all the topics themselves, how has securities fraud changed over time and, and maybe even in response to or because of Sarbanes-Oxley? It's a really important part of the book is to show by looking at a variety of securities frauds over time and comparing and contrasting them, how the problem has evolved over time. I think we have a tendency to look at the present, look at the present situation. And the value of looking to history is that we can sort of see how something ends up becoming a problem rather than looking just at, you know, one fraud. There are a lot of excellent books, you know, smartest guys in the room about Enron or, or particular frauds. This, I think this book is unique because it compares and contrasts frauds over time. And the book argues that for a long time, securities fraud was not really viewed as a threat for, for larger public companies. It was seen mainly as a problem for small companies, especially ones that were relatively new and selling securities 
for the first time. An example of this is a big report, a special study of securities markets in the 1960s that the SEC commissioned, and they conclude that most securities fraud was happening in smaller companies that were not listed on exchanges. They were these smaller over-the-counter traded companies, which were not at the time required to issue periodic disclosure under the Exchange Act. And so it thus changes the regulations so that over-the-counter companies would be subject to periodic disclosure. Congress passes actually a statute in 1964 that says that is required. And, and in contrast, this is the you know post-World War II prosperity, large corporate giants with very skilled managers who had monopoly power, not a lot of foreign competition. They were really just bringing in all sorts of money. And at the time, investors were more likely to be individuals, retail investors, as opposed to institutions. As you begin to see more institutional investors in the 1960s and 1970s, stock markets become much more performance-minded. And they're more interested in trying to predict corporate performance. And they're the ones who are starting to generate these various projections. In my view, the first major public securities fraud of national significance involved the nation's largest railroad at the time, Penn Central. It basically issued misleading financial statements in order to create the impression that it would be able to overcome the decline of its core railroad business, which is under pressure as you have interstate highways, air travel is offering competition as well. And, you know, interestingly, it uses tactics very similar as we see later in Enron, where they're basically claiming to sell an asset, in one instance, a set of Six Flags amusement parks, in order to generate revenue at the end of a quarter or yearly period. The problem, though, is that they never really transfer the risk of loss with respect to those assets. And so it's not a valid sale that can be counted as revenue. That's something Enron did quite a bit. And it did this to deceive investors. And at some point, it could not keep up the illusion. They weren't able to generate enough cash to continue operating, tried to raise funds in the bond markets, but failed. And the company files for bankruptcy. So I think, I mean, it's helpful to hear how securities fraud or, or maybe accounting fraud has has changed or evolved a bit over time. I mean, I think in parallel with that, there was sort of a philosophical shift about, you know, the role of the corporation. You know, there's been this debate going on for some time now about whether the goal of the corporation should be to maximize shareholder value or I, I guess if we could at least agree that a goal of a corporation is to maximize shareholder value, like where do you rank that in the corporation's um, list of priorities? You know, in your book, Jim, you argue that there is a link between this concept of wealth maximization and and securities fraud, or maybe the, the frequency with which we see securities fraud in this space. So can you talk to us a little bit more about you know, that philosophical shift impacting fraud. Absolutely. And this is, as you noted, a hot topic today. To what extent should corporations focus on shareholder wealth maximization? And as you may know, 1950s, 1960s corporate managers did not necessarily view themselves as primarily maximizing shareholder wealth. They viewed themselves as taking care of a much broader range of stakeholders, and that might be a function of the security of their position. Also, partly because you have more passive retail investors that are not pressuring you as much. And I, I do agree with you also that there might be a bit of an ideological shift that you see in the 1970s. It's, it's, it's hard to pinpoint exactly when this happens, but an interesting data point is that if you look at the SEC's report on the Penn Central fraud that I just described. It's the first really lengthy SEC report of investigation 
for a large public company securities fraud, four or 500 pages, a massive document, a massive effort. This is where they, for the first time, advance essentially a shareholder wealth maximization theory of securities fraud. They talk a lot about the managers, the CEO, the culture, the tone at the top. And basically, after coming in, the CEO basically says, we need to maximize revenue and earnings in every way possible, in every way possible. And that's, in the SEC's view, a primary reason why this deception basically took place. And that to me is a very significant marker that I think has not really been noticed so much. And, you know, in today's world, I would say that it's not only the case that we have corporations maximizing shareholder wealth, which I I don't necessarily think is a, a bad thing. I think there are certainly some issues we we see with shareholder wealth maximization, but also some good things. You do see a focus on efficiency, and that can be good for corporations and the overall economy. So I'm not a person who rejects shareholder wealth maximization, but you might distinguish shareholder wealth maximization from what you might refer to as short-termism, a short-term focus on creating the appearance that you are maximizing shareholder wealth. And that, as I show in the book, happens a bit more gradually over the 1980s and 1990s. You know, you go from having initially annual projections of revenue. That was more the norm in the 60s and 70s. In the 80s, you begin seeing more quarterly projections, more short-term performance. And you think of a you know company like Xerox, which I discuss in the book, you know, during the 70s, it has monopoly power, doesn't have a real need to demonstrate short-term profit maximization. But as it faces more competition from overseas, from changes in technology, it has to show that it is meeting benchmarks. And, you know, by the 1990s, it's doing everything it possibly can to meet those quarterly projections because it has to tell a story that we're going to survive the digital revolution that was happening around that time that's going to make our copiers either obsolete or less of a strong business. It basically arbitrarily changes various assumptions that it used in its accounting. And while some of those decisions were arguably within its discretion, the motive as the SEC was clearly to meet earnings projections. It was not to present a fair picture of its financial performance. It was really just meeting projections. And that to me is what I think led the SEC to impose the first major penalty on a corporation for securities fraud of $10 million, which is not a, a lot by today's standards, but it was a significant step because it was it was the first. It was the first major penalty that we saw. You know, in the modern era, a few, a, a few years ago, we saw a case against Under Armour, the sports apparel company. And you know, basically, it was asking customers to accept all of this merchandise early so that it could recognize the revenue in an earlier period. And the interesting thing is the the reason it was doing so was that it it it, it felt like it had to maintain a fifteen percent growth rate in its revenue, which which is high, right? It's an extraordinarily high rate of revenue. It wasn't just a matter of showing we're making a bit of a profit versus a loss. They are trying to meet very high expectations to generate a valuation. And the SEC basically says that this is securities fraud. So so to me, there are a lot of examples like this where we see some of the, sh- the short-termism of modern markets accelerating some of the pressure on public companies to misstate their financial statements. And I think, Jim, that pressure doesn't always lead to securities fraud, right? You may turn to your sales team in December and say, hey, guys, if we're going to make our numbers, let's go out and work hard. Creates an opportunity for individuals to make decisions that will help the business. And, And unfortunately, as you talked about, in some cases, there's financial reporting ways that those numbers might get met without the economic reality matching that. So it is that kind of dichotomy. And I'm glad you brought up short termism, because I think that's something that's kind of maybe gradually changing. We've seen some public companies make decisions about how they're going to report their projected earnings on a go forward basis to help manage those issues ahead. So hopefully that's somewhere that that we can see a little bit of improvement or at least acknowledgement around the limitations of, of kind of that quarterly reporting cycle. 
All right, Jim, again, that's The Valuation Treadmill. Great book that will be coming out at the end of July. Pre-order today. I'm excited to, to get a copy and, and kind of read through in great detail and, and probably agree, Professor Park, with a lot of what your, your, your points are here, knowing from one accounting student here as in myself to another. But to turn back to our 20th anniversary topic about Sarbanes-Oxley, Yes or no answer only. No no way to describe what your thoughts are, Professor Park. Did Sarbanes-Oxley work? Yes or no? Yes. All right. Okay. We got a direct answer. We've got, we've got, <laughs> wow. we've got the soundbite. Wow. We've got the soundbite. Unequivocation. <laughs> but no, please elaborate. You know, that, that's, my, that's my position. I, I, I think it did. I think mm-hmm. there is evidence that it did. You know, one piece of evidence. We haven't seen another Enron or WorldCom in the last 20 years. And I think that is a very significant, uh, you know, a, a very significant piece of evidence that the company was successful. We can, you know, also another piece of evidence is you look at, you know, securities class action filings, private suits under Rule 10b-5. As you may know, you know, you get on average, maybe a couple hundred of these every year, and that has continued. But I've, I've looked at this in, in other work. You really look at the percentage that are alleging a clear violation of, of GAAP, of, of accounting rules, and it's it's declined. It, it, it's, it has declined, and more cases are focusing on sort of broader misstatements of, of qualitative information, and this will get us into sort of ESG securities fraud, which I think is where we're seeing some interesting cases. Uh, and so I think that there is, if, you, if, you're, if you're talking about if success is measured by fewer big gap violations, I think there's evidence that Sarbanes-Oxley is having an effect. Now, as you point out, though, that, you know, the, the there's maybe a shift, though, to what we might think of as more borderline activities where you're not clearly violating GAAP, but you might be making certain business decisions to meet short-term metrics. And as you point out, some of those are entirely legitimate. Let's, let's work hard and let's get a bunch of sales so that we can show growth. Others are a bit more questionable, a bit more manipulative. You know, maybe let's cut our R&D budget, let's cut our advertising in order to meet an earnings projection. And there is some evidence that this happens. There's an interesting Harvard Business Review article that has the title, you know, cooking the decisions rather than the books. And, you know, the SEC, I think, is going to have to figure out to you know, at what point do some of those decisions become uh, misleading, even if they're not violating accounting rules? And I think that becomes much harder. Now, you know, the fact that, you know, Sarbanes-Oxley has worked up to now, I don't think it guarantees it will continue to work. We might see more creative accounting violations in the future, and some of those may be brought to light as we go into more of a downturn. And if, if we do go into a bit of a, a, a downturn, we might have more reason to look closely at accounting. But, you know, I think the processes and procedures that have been set up by Sarbanes-Oxley do make it more difficult to commit more blatant accounting frauds. Another, you know, in addition to Sarbanes-Oxley, you have whistleblower provisions of Dodd-Frank that give incentives for employees to report blatant fraud. And so those, in my view, those those provisions are working. All right, Chris. So we got an unequivocal yes from Jim <laughs> that Sarbanes-Oxley <laughs> works. Now we're going to point the question at you. What do you think? Yes or no only, of course. No, I'm kidding. What, what do you think? How, how's socks working out? As, as a failed improv comedian, I'm going to say yes and, Kurt. Sarbanes-Oxley, I think, is, like I said up top, a seminal piece of regulation that has dictated a lot of change for the better in the accounting and in the financial reporting world. One of the things that always comes up, and, and Professor Park, I'm sure you see this as well, every time there is a new accounting rule change, Someone gets out a calculator and says, okay, with 404 and 302 and other requirements from Sarbanes-Oxley, this accounting change is going to cost the average public company 
X dollars, you know, if Sarbanes-Oxley didn't exist, this company would save, you know, $10 million on their audit fees in a year because they've got to, you know, go about all these new RevRec issues or all these new lease accounting issues. Uh, I think that's a good point to bring up, right? This is not free. This is not just an easy solution that everyone can agree on because a lot of it requires more detailed focus, more assurance, literally, around the way the financial numbers are reported. So I think that's a good discussion to have. And I think Sarbanes-Oxley, for all the points, Jim, that you brought up, did succeed in a lot of ways. The one item that, as a practicing accountant at, who's worked at major accounting firms throughout my career, that I really appreciate from the Sarbanes-Oxley world is the focus on internal systems of control at auditing firms. There is a very strict, very bright line that has been drawn and, and updated and changed and, and modified throughout the past 20 years that Sarbanes-Oxley started around the idea of independence and objectivity of your auditors. You cannot audit a public company that you are also providing significant consulting or, or accounting advice to, you know, maybe not in specifics to how they're reporting their financial performance, but in implementations of, you know, managed services or other types of work that you can do. And again, we could do a whole podcast on on conflicts of, of interest and in, in business conflicts for accounting firms. But at every firm that I know of, and, and, and at least in, you know, the top 100, 200 firms across the country, the systems of record and reporting around those relationships are robust and detailed. And it is very clear whether you're inside a firm or you're reading a press release about the SEC coming down on a firm for violating auditing standards or, or having conflicts in the way that they're performing their assurance services, that something was amiss. And I think prior to Sarbanes-Oxley, a focus on that conflict system, on that analysis of relationships and how it may impede or change the way that your audit is viewed in the markets didn't exist. Or, or if it did exist, was not a focus of, of the accounting firms. That, to me, is something that I, I helps me sleep at night. You know, Sarbanes-Oxley is a piece of legislation that is not perfect for a lot of reasons. But I think that there are areas that have brought the accounting firms forward from, you know, a nuisance or, or God forbid, even potentially, you know, your golfing buddy who also signed your 10K at the end of the year to someone whose job it is, is to literally attest to the fairness of the presentation of the financial or economic reality of the business. That has been a lot more robust. And one thing I'll talk about here, and, and Professor Park would love your reaction briefly on, the discussion in the past few weeks about major firms, big four accounting firms and others, dividing up their business between the audit side, EY being the most far down this road, or at least furthest in this discussion, splitting up between an audit firm and a completely separate business, completely different entity for just consulting business. And that would eliminate a lot of the conflicts that major companies go through and create this kind of new consulting firm issue that was actually very similar, and Professor Park, hopefully you agree, to how things split in 2003, 2004, when most of the big, at the time there were five, you know, afterwards there were four, the big four accounting firms spun off their consulting businesses because of the new rules of Sarbanes. So there's been a little bit of bleed over back to those discussions of independence between consultings and audit. How do you see, Professor Park, that, that maybe big four shakeup? I, I think it's a, it's a good thing. And um, it is something that um, I think is, is you know, is, is, it's a good idea to act preemptively before we get the next scandal. And, you know, certainly, you know, there are always questions about whether or not it really matters. There is, you know, there was a big debate about that with when Sarbanes-Oxley was passed, whether you do have to require, you know, auditors to spin off their consulting businesses or not. I think it, it, you know, it makes a certain amount of sense to me that if you don't have that competing pressure to sort of generate consulting revenue that um, you might approach the audit a bit, a bit differently. So I do think that this is a, a positive, a positive step before we see you know, another wave of, of, of scandals, perhaps, that would threaten the few remaining big accounting firms, auditing firms that we have. Mm -hmm. So viewing back at kind of the Sarbanes-Oxley timeline, Professor Park, you know, one of the other criticisms that comes up around Sarbanes-Oxley's successes is in the number of cases brought and that kind of hanging theme out there related to the financial crisis of 2008. There were not significant securities fraud cases brought, you know, in response to that. You mentioned the Dodd-Frank Act as a piece of legislation following it, but we didn't see the kind of same Enron, WorldCom, Tyco, you know, you know, focused on whether it was, you know, high finance or mortgage-backed securities businesses. You know, what do you make of the lack of securities fraud cases around that time period? 
Yeah, and I think that gets to the quote from Jesse Isinger that that you read. And that's that's really the argument he makes in the book that cases should have been brought. I take a a somewhat different approach because I th- I think the situations were somewhat different. And and the reason you don't see as many big cases, at least part of the reason is that, you know, you just didn't have a persuasive theory of securities fraud. You did have some companies that issued deceptive statements about their exposure to subprime mortgages. So Citigroup is an example of such a company. They imply they've gotten rid of all of their subprime mortgages, but they actually have a significant amount but even when that was revealed, that was not what precipitated the near death of Citigroup, right? The the banks really come to the brink of collapse over time as the lack of confidence extends to a broader range of housing assets, not just subprime, as well as other types of assets. And you can argue this was an unprecedented storm in a sense and that, you know, maybe bank executives knew or should have known about how bad the crisis would be. There is certainly that argument. On the other hand, I think there's a case that they might have been almost as surprised or just as surprised as investors about how bad things really Got and, and ultimately, for there to be a strong securities fraud case, you have to show a significant asymmetry in the manager's knowledge relative to the rest of the world. And you can do that for some things in the 2008 crisis, but not for others. And, and so I think that, to me, is a reason why you didn't see as many securities fraud cases brought against the banks. Another point to make is if you think about WorldCom and Enron, those were cases where criminal cases were brought and convictions were won. Uh, and the difference in my view as to why no criminal cases or no, not, not as many significant criminal cases were brought against high-level bank executives, I think there are a couple reasons. One is that you just didn't have a foundational set of civil cases that had been brought over the years that could establish a strong, clear theory of securities fraud. And Enron and WorldCom were preceded by efforts against companies like you know, Xerox and Ascendant and Waste Management, you know, as early as the late 90s, Arthur Levitt gives a speech highlighting the problem of the numbers game. And so this was sort of developed in civil cases before you got to a criminal case. And sort of the 2008 financial crisis, you know, the question is really more about, you know, asset valuation and that's a little bit different than revenue recognition and, and earnings fraud to meet projections. So I think it was a little bit harder to, you know, make the case that criminal cases should be brought. I mean, just to link it to the present day, you know, the Manhattan DA was investigating Donald Trump about asset valuations and were they deliberately false? And they, you know, announce that we think there's probably not a criminal case, you know, despite there being some evidence that he submitted inflated valuations of various assets. And that, to me, highlights how difficult it can be to show objectively that asset valuations were were false. And so that, I think, is the reason why you don't see as many criminal securities fraud cases and and serious securities fraud cases more generally after the financial crisis of 2008. We talk about securities fraud cases, right? And there's really how I divide it up in in two ways, right? There's the regulator side, right? The SEC or, or, you know, PCAOB for accounting firms and others, uh, but also kind of the private litigation side. Do you see any difference in the role between those two and how they approach or or how securities fraud is dealt with under those two ideas? It's a very good point. And it's, it's a very important part of studying securities fraud regulation. And, you know, generally the SEC is viewed as a more measured enforcer, as a more responsible enforcer, because it doesn't have a profit motive to bring cases. Private plaintiffs are often viewed as bringing too many cases because they have a monetary incentive to sue public companies whenever the stock price 
goes down. But I, I believe that both play an important role in bringing securities fraud cases and developing securities fraud theories. You know, you look at the 1980s, you know, the SEC didn't bring a whole lot of enforcement cases against public companies around that time. It was private plaintiffs who were bringing cases against technology companies that were becoming more important at the time that, you know, they say they have a great product, but it turns out that the product is not very good and their stock price fails. And so there's kind of a question of, did, did you know that the product was basically a dud? A famous case that I discuss in the book involved Apple, which we all know as a very successful company today. But at the time, it was struggling a little bit because it had, you know, the Apple II, which was a great success, but it had to sort of follow up on that with another product to maintain its high valuation. And so it developed a computer called the Lisa, which was basically their attempt to reach a business consumer, which might have more, more, more money. And one of the things they implied was that it had a really, you know, high performance disk drive that had been subject to extensive tests. This is the day when we had disk drives. And that was actually, yeah, what are those for for discs? (laughs) I have to show my students a picture of what that looks like, because, you know, and storage is a real issue. You don't have all those, you know, huge amounts of, of storage to, to, to put your videos and music on. And so, you know, they imply that they've extensively tested it and that, that it's a working product. But in fact, the drive wasn't finished and ultimately it, it, it failed. And so, you know, looking at the arguments in that case, you see this, you know, in a lot of cases, both in the 80s and today, Apple basically says, you know, this is just how things work, right? It's that, you know, you we're, we're developing innovative technologies that are hard to really finish. You promise a great product to get people excited, to get investors excited. But sometimes at the end, it just doesn't work, right? It just something fails. You know, the plaintiffs, though, say that, you know, you're a public company. You should, you know, you should tell us about the problem so we can adjust the stock price. You didn't have any language that, you know, that that warned us. And so the plaintiffs win the case, at least initially, there's a $100 million verdict that, you know, sends shockwaves through Silicon Valley. Once you see the risk of a large verdict like that, that pressures a lot of companies to settle their cases. And and ultimately, this leads to the passage of the PSLRA, the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act, which, as you know, puts a lot of procedural limits on securities class actions. And, you know, kind of the interesting shift in the story is after the PSLRA, the SEC starts get, getting back into bringing securities fraud cases. And, and that, to me, was a very important step because that's what sets the foundation, I think, for securities fraud cases to be viewed by judges and others as potentially having merit. And in the modern day, I'm seeing a lot of aggressive theories by this SEC with respect to expanding the definition of securities fraud. And so it just kind of varies over time as to who is sort of taking the lead on these cases. Yeah, and I think that leads into another topic for our discussion today about private companies. You know, the valuation treadmill focuses, rightly so, on the public company arena and the rules around that and how securities fraud may drive change or, or God forbid, occur again going forward. How do you feel that, specific to the SEC, what should they be doing to address securities fraud by private companies? It's a great question. It's not not entirely clear to me, um, you know, how aggressively the SEC should be looking at, at private companies. On the one hand, you know, private companies have become larger, much more important in our economy. A lot of the tech companies that would have been public in the 1980s are staying private today. And so there are very significant businesses that have been, been formed. And, you know, there's an argument that investors need protection, especially as you're beginning to see valuation rounds and certain similar types of pressure with respect to private companies. On the other hand, you could say these are mostly, you know, sophisticated investors who should should know to look for fraud. And so why should the SEC be protecting venture capital firms, institutional investors, wealthy individuals, and to the extent that a private company is you know, is is private, it's you're not going to necessarily have the same secondary sort of losses of, of confidence in public markets when a private company fails. And I think that's something 
that we see with the Enrons and WorldComs that when you lose confidence in public company valuations, it affects not just the companies that committed the fraud, but a wider range of similar public companies and sometimes the entire marketplace. And that's a reason why I think that we prioritize public company securities fraud enforcement. All right. So I think we've covered a lot of where we've come from and where we are today relating to securities fraud. One of the hot topics that's being discussed today and has been for a few months now is ESG, the Environmental, Social and Governance Related Disclosure Requirements. You know, a few almost a year ago, the topic was kind of in theory only with some new groups coming out about what should be reported from a a climate risk side, from an exposure side, supply chain, et cetera, as well as board diversity and other topics. We've definitely done a few episodes, Kurt, on ESG in the past. So for those avid listeners like Professor Park students, feel free to go back and check in on those. But when it comes to securities fraud, how do you see, Professor Park, ESG folding into the future? Those requirements, those disclosures, are they going to be a a new area of securities fraud focus, especially from an enforcement side, or more of the same, you know, same type of disclosures and the same type of cases being brought? I think we will see a shift in the types of cases, and we've already seen it to some extent. There are a number of significant securities fraud cases basically alleging that the failure to disclose the risk of an ESG crisis in a company was securities fraud. And interestingly, the SEC is leading the charge in many of these cases, starts all the way back to the Deepwater Horizon disaster with British Petroleum. The SEC brings a case about its risk, its estimates relating to the extent of the spill that they were misleading. You know, more recently, they just filed a case against a Brazilian company, Vale, for a environmental disaster with the collapse of a of a dam. And, you know, one of the interesting things that they point to in that complaint is various sustainability reports that Vale had distributed to investors. And so I think the more investors are demanding this information and the more companies are providing it, that provides a greater basis. There's more to basically say, you know, you are misstating something. There are more opportunities, I think, for companies to to mislead investors when they're issuing more statements on ESG. And if we get some more mandatory disclosure with respect to climate emissions, climate risk, cybersecurity risk, then companies, as they are assessing and evaluating those risks, once you have the information and it's clear that it's material, at some point you could get into trouble if you're issuing statements implying there is no problem. And so I think we will see more litigation like this. On the other hand, we see a lot of cases by private plaintiffs being dismissed. Private plaintiffs arguing that there's securities fraud for ESG-related crises. And so, you know, one common sort of scenario that I've seen in the case law is that there's a big scandal at the company and the plaintiff says, well, you, you know, you had disclosure saying we have a culture of high integrity, a culture of compliance. That's misleading. Courts often say that that falls under a doctrine called puffery, that it's not a specific enough statement for you to say that it's, 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 it's a guarantee against you know, any, that that nothing bad will ever happen. And so a lot of courts have said actually that that is not sufficient. But as you get more specific disclosure requirements around ESG issues, it'll be a bit harder for companies to make that argument, even in cases involving private plaintiffs. And so I do think that we will see an increase in ESG securities litigation going forward. Yeah, I'd agree with you there, Professor. I think to me, it's it's another standard by which these ideas will be judged, similar to the appropriateness of the revenue you're recording. You know, although very different and equally probably complex, those two ideas really come down to the 
focus of the reporter or of the, the, the private litigant here uh, to understand what the issues are. You, you talked about that kind of ethics uh, disclosure. And, and for those who, who read a lot of, of financial news and press, uh, Matt Levine on, on Bloomberg always talks about it. Everything is securities fraud is his kind of theory about anytime something goes wrong at a company, you've lied to your investors in some way. And we'll save that debate for another one. I think it is a spectrum of where we see these violations versus you know, individual businesses doing their best to report ESG in the best way they can and maybe making a mistake. You know, you could argue that's not securities fraud that's trying to follow the rules and maybe missing a little bit. So I'm sure Professor Park will have you on dozens more times to talk about securities fraud related to to ESG going forward. But apart from just ESG, you know, Professor, what do you see securities fraud as in the next decade, the next 10 years? Are we going to see a shift in, in focus and topic? ESG, you know, part of that conversation? Or will it be a lot of continued activity and, and enforcement actions as we see today? It's a really great, great, great question. And, you know, to, to get to your point about Matt Levine's everything is securities fraud sort of theme, and it's, 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 it's a bit tongue in cheek, of course. But, you know, I think courts have been smarter than that, even courts and regulators and that they, you know, they are very careful to construct a very particular factual allegations that go beyond, you know, something bad happens that what, you know, that you didn't disclose and therefore the stock price went down and that's securities fraud. I mean, you know, you could say that was, you know, arguably what some, com- some, some plaintiffs attorneys were doing in the eighties with technology companies. And, and maybe they were to some extent, but I think now the SEC and private plaintiffs are a bit more, be careful to craft the theory a little bit more precisely. What will securities fraud look like in the next decade, in addition, I think, to there being more ESG-related cases, I think the big challenge for the SEC and the courts is to figure out how some of these you know, potentially manipulative practices where you're not clearly violating GAAP, but you might be engaging in what could be characterized as deceptive practices like channel stuffing, for example. The courts have never clearly ruled on when sort of channel stuffing, which is you basically, you know, you know, pump up sales artificially in some way, maybe by offering discounts or encouraging your customers to take product earlier. When is that securities fraud? The courts have not closed the door on channel stuffing being securities fraud, but they also have not been all that receptive to cases like that when brought by private plaintiffs. The SEC, though, has been bringing, you know, more cases like that. The Under Armour case that I discussed has a footnote that's very careful to say we're not alleging violations of GAAP, but we think that this is a essentially a deceptive sort of, of, of practice. And so how are we going to develop tests that will distinguish between those sorts of, you know, what could be considered on their face business decisions, but might be primarily motivated to generate short-term results. When is that securities fraud? And I think we'll continue to see that because of the pressure of the valuation treadmill, that, that companies will continue to do this and that the SEC should look at, at, at these sorts of cases very closely and try to I try to develop some good ones that will provide some guidance to corporations as to what is appropriate and what is not appropriate. So, you know, one of the effects of Sarbanes-Oxy, as we know, is that fewer companies go public and that there are alternatives to going public that have sprouted up. SPACs, obviously, is the, the SPAC is an obvious example of this. And, you know, there are already, you know, securities fraud cases that are being brought in that particular context. And I expect that that could be a hot topic of litigation as we go outside of the traditional IPO context where you have an underwriter that sets a price that does the due diligence. Companies, when they're going public in other ways, to what extent are they misleading investors? And there are all sorts of complicated issues about into Section 11, why to SPACs in some cases or some situations, or is you just left with Rule 10b-5, you know, to what extent would, you know, 14a-9 come into play there? And so I think we will see a whole set of cases if it still is expensive to be a public company. And so markets are trying to find ways to other ways to bring companies 
public, which will raise a lot of interesting issues. All right, Jim. So it sounds like, you know, maybe there, I don't think I hear you advocating sort of a regulatory fix, but maybe we just need a a more assertive, a, more, a busier SEC enforcement division. But I mean, are there, are there things you would point to where you think the SEC can do a better job in addressing this, this problem you've identified of corporate securities fraud? Yeah, I think, you know, if you think about the proposals I make in, in the book, some of them are about perhaps expanding certain disclosure obligations, disclosures to update could be stronger. And there's also, you know, proposals, though, of, of limiting the scope of securities fraud liability so it more clearly focuses in on those val- uncertain valuation such sorts of issues. You know, so some of the sort of the broader theme of that last chapter, which is always the hardest to write, the, the hardest part of a law review article or a book is the part that actually says, what, what should we do about these problems and issues? And, you know, the, the book is, is mainly a, a history to show us where we've been and to diagnose the issue. I don't have any silver bullets. And, and, and the one, you know, the one major point, major theme in the last chapter that I make is it was made by a NYU law professor, Homer Kripke, 40, 50 years ago. And he makes a general critique of SEC disclosure. The disclosure regime is mainly focusing in on the past as opposed to the future. And that's, uh, you know, inherently problematic when we consider that valuation is really about future performance. You know, how can we improve investor assessment of future performance and make sure it has more integrity? Sarbanes-Oxley does a lot with respect to the past, making sure that the past record of performance has integrity. To what extent can we make sure that when companies are issuing predictions or projections, that that information has integrity? And, you know, one of the interesting things about corporate projections is that, you know, the SEC for a long time discouraged them, almost banned them in a sense in SEC filings, and they they sort of shift in the late 1970s, early 1980s. But, you know, companies are not required to issue projections. They're not required to take a stand on what our future revenue or earnings is going to be. And I think the reason the SEC decided not to take that step in the 70s was the concern that, you know, for a lot of companies, it's kind of hard to do that. It's really difficult to make such predictions and projections. But I think we're in a different world now where, you know, with the companies that survive sort of the costs of Sarbanes-Oxley that are able to go public, that there's a greater demand for companies that are able to sort of have a good sense of where their future performance is going. And some of that information, I think, could be useful to investors and providing some more transparency in that process of how financial projections are being made, in my view, could be helpful in reducing some of the pressures that we see on public corporations to to meet analyst expectations. And it might check the, the place where a lot of companies go get into trouble is that they, they get too ambitious and unrealistic about their projections. Maybe if they were required to disclose more about them and take a firm stance on their future performance, that some of that, that pressure could dissipate. And, you know, at the very least, investors will know, well, this is the corporate projection. Or this is the corporate projection and it's lower or higher than what the research analysts are predicting. Now it's very hard to really figure that out if you are an ordinary, you know, investor. You know, why is Tesla valued at what it is? I'm sure that if you are a professional and you, you know, run models and have a lot of information that you have a, a sense of what exactly are the, the the predictions that would justify its high market capitalization. But for the ordinary retail investor, it's very hard to figure out. And so what if what if Tesla was required to issue its own projections and the basis for those projections so that investors without those connections could just get a better sense of, well, you know, they're predicting, you know, their their revenue is going to grow by 50% every year for, you know, however many years. I, you know, I think that's crazy. Or I think that's reasonable or not ambitious enough. I think that information could be useful to 
investors and it might might check some of the problems that we see with respect to sort of surprises in valuations and uncertainty about how valuations are are set. So that that's sort of my overall theme, which I sketch out towards the end of the book, and that's kind of my project to to, to fill that out in a little bit more more detail. Because you know there were a lot of proposals in the seventies and early eighties to require mandatory disclosure of financial projections, but they basically have been forgotten. And I think part of the point of the book is to say, hey, maybe maybe we should look at this again. Excellent. Well, for our listeners out there interested in more from Professor Park, that's the Valuation Treadmill, How Securities Fraud Threatens the Integrity of Public Markets, or Someone Who's Trying to Be a Better Workout Person. That entire title scares me. Not only the securities fraud, but also the treadmill part of it. Kurt, I know you're in pretty good shape. You probably take the treadmill a little bit better than I do. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know about that. This, this particular treadmill doesn't worry me, but you know, I'm also not on your side of the of the insecurities right. coin, as you said. No, no, I look forward to reading it all. I know Jim was kind enough to give us a preview. What I've seen is great. Highly recommend it to our listeners. And Jim, look, we'll have to have you back for the 25th anniversary of Sox. It's just, just five That's years right. away. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks so much, Chris and Kurt. I really appreciate what you guys are, are doing. I appreciate the chance to to talk about the book, to talk about Sarbanes-Oxy. We're actually having a whole symposium in the fall at, at UCLA, sponsored by the Lowell Milken Institute, our business law center there, with experts presenting papers. And it's going to be published in The Business great. Lawyer, which is a, a great publication for corporate yeah. Uh, law professors and uh, I think it'll be we're gonna have very diverse views some people think Sarbanes-Oxley is a great thing others other th others think it's a bad thing I mean I think it's really important to reassess this sort of legislation as as we go and so thank you for the opportunity to talk about socks as well as as, as as well as the book and and I you know I really appreciate what you guys are doing for our community that's, that's great to hear Jim and, and we would not have kicked off our accounting summer school with anyone else except for for you professor Park so thanks so much <laughs> thanks for joining us for this episode of the insecurities podcast and a special thanks to our guest professor Jim Park of UCLA's School of Law as always we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts comments and topics for discussion on future episodes of insecurities please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at EkimoffCPA. And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI. PLI.